This is a special edition of the Webhawk News Podcast for Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. I'm Jim Cates. And we welcome back Space Case Sarah Treadwell, who has been to Mars or something simulating Mars for the last couple of weeks. And welcome back. Thank you. Welcome back to Terra Firma. Yes. And, uh, uh, tell us, you, you were at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, very rural Utah. Yes. One of uh, many, many research uh, expeditions they've had out there, part of a crew of several people. And can you tell us, in a nutshell, what you did out there for a couple of weeks? Well, we yeah, we were there for two weeks, simulating as if we were living on a station on Mars. And crew 265, which was my crew, uh, their objective primarily was to upgrade the radio communication systems as well as test out some um, like smart home systems within the habitat that we lived in to kind of optimize the, the, the power usage of the station because that station primarily operates off of solar power. Um, we would switch to a generator usually at night, but the more we can conserve energy, the better. So, um, but really it was about uh, kind of redoing some of the maps of the area because the GPS coordinates <laughs> did not always correlate exactly to where you would end up. So they wanted to update the GPS maps um, and update the uh, radio communication systems because you don't quite understand how remote that area is until you're there and then you're like, wow. Um, as soon as you would walk out into that wilderness and you lose sight of that habitat, I, I know how people could get lost easily. I mean, it's, it doesn't even, you don't have to go that far. And it's like, everything looks the same. If you don't really know where you're going, you could easily get lost. So this was a really important mission for sure. So walk us through what this looks like. I've seen uh, anyone who can, can go and get this on Google Earth. What is the nearest town there? Hanksville. Hanksville, that's yeah. right. And and you can see just a few miles outside of there, you see the, the, the station. Tell us what it looks like, what it consists of. Yeah, so the station um, looks kind of something out of a sci-fi movie. The, the main living hab is a very large cylinder. Um, and then there are tunnels that extend out from that cylinder. And one goes to a dome that is a science dome. And then there is another tunnel that goes up to the ram which is where they it's basically like a big workshop um and then another tunnel goes out to one of the observatories there's two observatories on site one's a solar observatory and one is for nighttime um and uh from the outside even when i look at pictures it looks like it would be so small but really the habitat was very comfortable it's two levels i saw the pictures it looked a little <clears throat> comfier on the inside than I pictured it yeah, would be. Yeah. yeah, I was really surprised when we walked in. I was like, this is much more spacious than I kind of had built up in my head that it was going to be. Um, the bottom level is where uh, there's also sort of a workshop kind of space. And then there are two exit points um, that we would go out from. And basically when you're in simulation, you have to wait in these chambers. Well, one of them, not both of them, um, for five minutes for a simulated compression or decompression and um and it's where we store all the spacesuits because you have to wear those outside and then you go up a very steep i'm going to call them stairs but it's more like a glorified ladder <laughs> and then you're on the second level and there's a main living space and then there are six rooms um that the rooms are a little tight but it is very livable 
Um, and that is where you spend a lot of your time on that second level. And it's got a little kitchen and kitchen table and a couch that if anyone from MDRS is listening, you should probably replace your couch. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it, it was definitely more comfortable than I anticipated. And your fellow crew members, mostly graduate students? Um, no. Hmm. So the commander and the executive officer are two in very good shape, might I add, older men who were um, semi-retired or retired. And then we had one person who, Sergey, our engineer, who was, um, he has his master's degree, so he's a working professional. And then Isai and Benny were our Texas twins, we called them. And they're both working on their associates still actually in civil engineering. And they're going to be going to a four-year college next year. Um, so they were undergrad but like older undergrad level working professional going back for their majors. And then there was me. <laughs> we were supposed to have another woman on the crew, but um, she had to drop out because she had issues with her visa. So I was the only woman. <laughs> and it was me and five guys. <laughs> and you were the communication officer. And basically, so you were charged of getting the message out. And, and how does one get on, get, get to be a member of this? You apply and... Uh, yep. There's a website and yes. you express your interest. And... Yes. Yeah, the, the process I think has changed actually since I applied. I applied pre-COVID and that really slowed down crews getting assigned and, and that kind of thing. Um, now, basically, the way I understand that it works, um, there's a very short window of when you can apply. The, the applications open usually around like December, Christmas time for not the season that is coming up, but like the season after that. And um, I think now what you have to do is you have to just submit letters of interest and inquiry to the directors, um, and then they will let you know if they want you to continue with the application process. I think because it's they get a lot of interest in, and, um, and so it's a way to sort of vet before the huge influx of interest comes in. Um, there is... A unique opportunity right now, I just want to mention really quick, through May 22nd, applications are open for a high school program, really? which they've never offered high school programming mm -hmm. before. And so a uh, similar process, you have to send letters of, of recommendation and interest to the directors. But um, yeah, it's a five-day sim for high school level students. So and I'm that, thinking, wow, what a great Oh. science fair project oh my gosh to put that on your uh, college application oh, yes. would be insane Absolutely. yeah so that is something that they're offering for the very first time through like i said through may 22nd of this month so if anyone is listening who's of high school age <laughs> uh. just go to mdrs.org and um or just google you know mars desert research station and you'll find the information and this is this is put out by the, the whole thing is is sponsored by the Mars Society, yes, which is a, a, a group that's been around for a number of years now with the idea of promoting exploration, uh, eventually human trips to Mars. Uh, we talk in the long term about things like colonization. And uh, so this is this is their baby. And yeah. it's a diverse group of people, scientists and, and uh, public policy people and uh, uh, people who are simply interested in exploration and pushing the boundaries of where people can go. And it sounds like a, a fascinating group. But they're, they've been behind this now for, what, about 20 years? Yeah. 
it's been, yeah, about 20, 20 years. It might be even closer to 30 now that I think about it, uh, that it's been going. Um, and yeah, the Mars Society has been fundamental for supporting this. And also, I guess I need to give a little shout out also to Elon Musk, who is a big supporter of the station as well. Um, he, the one of the observatories is named the Musk Observatory. And uh, shout out to them. We had Starlink. <laughs> so it was really phenomenal. Um, oh, that whole network of Musk satellites. Yes, yeah, Starlink is through SpaceX. And um, oh. we were given Starlink for the station. Which is so basically, you can talk wherever you want to. Talk. You you could. We we definitely tried to simulate um, being on Mars and and having a delay of fourteen minutes, which I will admit is a little bit difficult because that's not how cell phones work, and so you know, um, and the internet works, if you will. So it it, it we did our best. Um, it was very helpful though to have that internet access. And we had a discussion actually between ourselves thinking, you know, by the time we got to Mars, there would have to be a little bit faster internet communication systems. We would have had the technology probably at least, I don't know, somehow it probably would be better than than what we have now. So we were trying to give ourselves a little bit of grace. It was very helpful to have that though, because I guess in the past, um, the bandwidth for the internet was so low and we're required to send out these reports at the end of the day that only one person could be on a computer at a time because it was so slow. Whereas now we all could sit down, boop, 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 you know, boop. And for me as the crew journalist, it was very useful to uh, have the internet because um, sometimes other people would go outside for that day and they'd email me their pictures or, you know, like that, just that communication between us, it was super helpful. So Starlink is really amazing too. <laughs> like it was really nice. <laughs> so who was watching or listening while you were doing this stuff? Uh, pe science people, probably lots of uh, very ardent amateurs. Yeah. Uh, uh, amateur astronomers, people simply interested in space exploration, lots of students, I would imagine. Yeah. I, you know, I don't really have a, a firm analysis, if you will, of the data of who all got the messages and, and saw all the social media posts and all that kind of stuff. I will say, I kind of feel like I made it a little bit because I got a little bit of hate. <laughs> hate. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, I Who's going to hate I you? Know. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> no, no, really. I, um, I, I did a few station tours and I put it on my very limited YouTube channel. Um, I don't have a lot on there and I had someone <laughs> kind of critique a couple things there. And then... I had some, so like I said, I had to write crew journalist reports each day, and then I would share that internally, which then the Mars Desert Research Station would share those externally, and then sometimes through the Mars Society, those were shared. So like those shares of shares, mm -hmm. I made the mistake of going and like looking at all the shares and who commented and stuff like that, and there were sometimes some, some comments that I was like, really? And mm -hmm. so then I was like, I think I'm making it, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. um, no one directly through my personal socials said anything negative, but it was like shares through shares, you know. So um, I don't know why, but I was kind of like, like, this is, I kind of took it as like a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's better to be noticed than ignored. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So tell me about, I, I did see some pictures you sent out of you in a space suit. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, you're trying to simulate really what it is like on Mars, mm -hmm. and it gets very, very hot there. Mm -hmm. 
uh, in the extremes of day and very, very cold mm -hmm. in the extremes of night. And there also, of course, is not a breathable atmosphere on Mars. So whenever you go out, you are in this space suit. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me what that's like. Is it heavy? How do oh. you get into it? Is it, does it, can you, is there air circulating in that big helmet? How's that work? Yeah. But the, the, the packs are just basically like backpacks. And then you have this ring that goes over your head and then you attach the helmet on top and then you attach the hoses that blow the air in. Um, so they're not difficult to get on or off. And then we had like flight suits that we would wear underneath that as part of our issued uniforms. Um, they're not, they're just, they're tedious. If you think that that it wasn't going to be tedious, I, I can assure you that they could get tedious because we went on very long EVAs. Um, that's what we call them when we go outside. And after about three hours, you're like, yeah, this is, I could, I could do taking this off. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I, I will say it's unique. It gets, grabs a lot of attention. And uh, unfortunately, that attention is starting to really ramp up. And so something that really ruined these experiences going outside a lot was we had a lot of tourists. I was wondering, there, you are in the middle of nowhere, but of course nowhere, nowhere in the United States is truly in the middle of nowhere. True. And there are a few analog stations in the world. This is the only one in the, you know, continuous United States, the, you know, that's not in Hawaii or mm -hmm. Alaska, um, you know, Antarctic kind of area. So this one's accessible mm -hmm. and a lot of people can swing by and take pictures. And we had that happen quite a lot. I personally, as a communicator, kind of, I'm like, oh yeah, like, you know, support it. Um, and I also used to work in fundraising. So my, my development fundraising right. brain was like, how can we like profit off of this? Yeah. Um, other people really don't like that because it really ruins that simulation experience when- If you speak inside the suit, can they hear you outside? You can shout. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. You, you can talk to people. Um, okay. Inside, it's rather noisy when the fans start blowing. Yeah. So it's hard for you to hear other people if they're not shouting. Um, we have radios that we use to talk back and forth. But yeah, I, I think there was even a crew that they got stopped and asked to have selfies. <laughs> so, you know, it it's, uh, like I said, for me, I have mixed feelings about it. Some people, it just absolutely destroys the experience for them. So, yeah. But you could put it on Twitter and Musk will see it now. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it... um. I don't know, you know, it, to me, it just seems like an opportunity maybe to have like a weekend and get some money to, you know, I don't know. I, I, but I also understand other people, it does ruin the experience. I mean, it's very hard to believe you're on Mars when <laughs> like even on one of my EVAs, this, you know, horse trailer goes by pulling a horse and you're like, ah, it's a Martian horse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But um we don't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right? Those those Martian, yeah. You know, that was something, if I have to um, kind of steer the conversation into this direction here now, mm. if there was something that I really struggled with mentally with this, it was getting into that simulation mindset. I will yes. fully admit that. Um, I, in part, was completely enamored with the topography and the geology mm -hmm. of the area. And it was really hard for me not to be like just in pure awe of how awesome Earth is. You know, I, I wasn't sitting there like, oh, this is Mars and look at that water evidence. I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, this is so cool. This is Earth. 
And my local natural history museum has a dig site right down the road. And so I kept thinking about like all the fossils that are around here in this area. And I just, my, my brain was very focused on that a lot when I was outside. And I just, it was really hard for me to be like, I'm on Mars because I just was so enamored with everything around me. Um, so between that and yeah, people showing up, mm-hmm. which is, I think something that's going to have to be addressed eventually at some now point. Now on, uh, on Mars, uh, gravity's what, about half what it is here? I'd have to look up that number again, uh, but know. yes, it's less. I know it's the, they, I mean, they were really bounding around on the moon, but there's yeah. a little more gravity. There's a little more than the moon. Yeah. Okay. When we really think about what it's going to take to put humans on Mars, um, most people would agree we are not anywhere ready to do that because mm-hmm. we do not know how to accommodate for the the biological weakness that is ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if it's not the effects of less gravity, which we already know is quite devastating for the yes. astronauts on the ISS, it will be the radiation. Because even on the ISS, the amount of radiation that they receive is significant enough that it, it affects you biologically. And so there is even far more on Mars. So when it comes to putting things on Mars, we've done it. We've got rovers and we're going to send more things. When it comes to putting people, it's us. It's we're the, we're the problem. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, mentally too, I, I really was surprised how mentally difficult at some points it was for me. There were definitely times where I was like, I'm just ready to go. I'm done. I'm just ready to be done um, for, I think, kind of a, an interesting reason. But mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. But yeah, you're, you're a relatively confined space. Uh, uh, seven people in all, you said? Um, yeah, it was six. Six. Okay. Yeah. These, these issues we talk about, uh, if you are confined in, many people went through this with COVID. Yeah. You know, even if you are in a, a nice home. You say, well, this is like house, house arrest. Yeah. And, uh, of course, for you, you can't leave without putting the suit on. Uh, there's the simulation, and the living quarters themselves are rather small, and there's a fair amount to be done, and personalities that have to be compatible. There's right. a chain of command. There are very straight-ahead, strict procedures, yep. which are designed to make things work smoothly. How did all that go? Were you surprised? Did you end up thinking, oh, my God, we could never do this for a two-year mission because we'd all end up killing each other on we, the way? Or We talked about that, actually, yeah. as a group. Like, oh, what if this was longer? How would we mm-hmm. do? Um, collectively, we all got along very well. We mm-hmm. had a very good balance of personalities. Um, I, I, by far, was the most outgoing uh, but then there was someone else who was pretty outgoing. But then we all had kind of like our respective places we would retreat to. And the balance was, I think, really, really good. Um, it's, within two days, I was like, yeah, there's no way anyone's going to have any major tiffs with each other. What was interesting and challenging for me, honestly, was that communication delay. Um, because I got really exciting big news while I was there. And I couldn't call anyone. I couldn't like immediately celebrate. I wanted to call my boyfriend right away and be like, oh my God, you know, and I couldn't. And that really got to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also getting such exciting big news surrounded by relatively people who are strangers to you. Yes. That was really, really weird. 
And then while I was there, my daughter lost her first tooth. Oh. And, you know, and then when I was there, my son, um, he was going full day preschool for the first time ever, had a blast, and he got to hold, like, baby chicks. And, you know, so, like, I'm getting all these stories back, and I'm like, oh, not that... Not that, I don't know, it just, there was something about that, that not being able to immediately mm-hmm. interact with the people who mean the most to me was really hard. And of course, especially over the last few years, we've become a society where we're used to yeah. immediately interacting. Yes, it was, that was so difficult for me. And uh, I'm, if my crew happens to listen to this, I apologize for that one day that I was on and off crying all day because mm. I got this news and it was really overwhelming yes. and exciting. And I didn't have anyone who understood the journey of how I got to that point. Yes. So to them, I was just this like, you know, I don't mean to sound full of myself, but like, oh, this is Sarah. Like, she's amazing. And no, oh, of course you got that. Right. Mm. And my story is not that at all, you know? Right. And so, yes. um, so it, it just was like so difficult to, process those feelings and I would kind of break down and then you know it's very wildly confusing to this group of men who are with me and they're like why is she this is good news why is she crying you know (laughs) and and, uh, and then just yeah not you know kind of missing out on those things it was also like my boyfriend's birthday while I was gone too Mm -hmm. and things like that you know it just I couldn't immediately interact with people when I wanted Mm -hmm. to and for me my my support system is very self-built and I really rely on a lot of people for different sort of, a lot of different things. And I couldn't rely on those people. And suddenly I'm with a bunch of strangers. So mm-hmm. I'm going through some of the biggest news of my life. Mm-hmm. And that was weird. And that's something that I'm still going to have to keep kind of mulling over and write about. Because that's going to be a real experience for astronauts too. Oh, yes. um, if not, you know, even astronauts who go to the ISS for a full year, mm-hmm. think of all the birthdays you miss. All yes. of the the celebrations and the sad things and yeah. you know that's a that's i mean they can at least immediately contact and talk back and forth we couldn't mm-hmm. and that would be probably something similar on mars so yeah it's just something i need to work on still <laughs> but yeah it's it's another piece of the puzzle yeah in, in how we get along and manage living in a, a very different psychic space yeah 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 it was mentally a lot more different Mm -hmm. than i expected because a little bit of that plot twist if you will Mm -hmm. in the story of getting there but and being there um so yeah i that really surprised me because like i said there were just a couple of times where i was like i'm just done like i'm just i'm ready to go call someone and go home and drive my car again Mm -hmm. um and just sit down oh oh and sit down at a restaurant because oh did that food get old real fast yeah oh my gosh oh oh so we had all dehydrated or you know highly shelf stable food Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh oh that gets old really fast yeah even though i am i'm very creative in the kitchen and i did a i made some really awesome meals because i did a lot of the cooking Mm -hmm. i still Oh man, the first day we were out of Sim and we went to a local burger place and we got food. I probably could have kissed the person working behind the counter like, I love you so much and this is the best chicken sandwich I've ever had. <laughs> it was, yeah, it You got think old. of the old astronaut stuff, you know, getting the, the, the protein out of the toothpaste yeah. tube oh, all yeah. this sort of hideous stuff. Yeah, that's a yeah. huge thing that they study in these analog mm-hmm. missions that was food fatigue. 
food fatigue food fatigue it's and it's real i will tell you it is definitely real um because food cannot simply be broken down into calories and nutrients and it's more than that right i mean and and you there's no tricking you when you rehydrate cheese it's rehydrated cheese i'm sorry it is not cheese that you got from the grocery store or powdered milk and you rehydrate that it's like it's powdered milk yeah you know it and it just yeah it really starts to wear down on you a little bit luckily we had coffee in a coffee maker (laughs) that must have coffee if it was only instant coffee i would have just been like that's it i quit i'm done (laughs) i'm leaving No alcohol? Um, uh, no. Uh, we did have a little bit on our last day out of Sim um, to celebrate the, the Texas Twins mm-hmm. had done really well in their final exams. And All like right. I said, I had my big news to celebrate. Yeah. And so we, we asked the station director um, if we could just a little bit. And she was like, yeah, that's fine. So mm-hmm. normally, though, it's too much of a, a, a liability. But yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Now, when, when you went out on these EVAs, what did you do? Did you drill for core samples? Did no. you? pick stuff up did you map terrain how does yeah. this work they mapped terrain they did a lot of mapping so mark our commander he does search and rescue missions mm-hmm. back on earth if you will mm-hmm. and he brought his gps units which are fascinating um they basically can show you how many satellites are above you at any given time and it's a ton and he would preset into the GPS units different points that we would go to, and then we would follow those GPS points to see how accurate they ended up actually being. And then we would test the radios at each point as well. And so the very first day, what they did is they went up on a on a very large hill and put a new receiver up there, a different type of receiver. So it read it would read a different type of wave. Ah, okay compared to the radios that we used, which were basically like fancy walkie-talkies. They just go back and forth. Yeah, point to point. Yeah. Yeah. And so they put a different receiver up on this hill. And so we would get to each spot and they would test each radio. And so we'd do the point to point ones like the walkie-talkie style. And then we would do the new system and see which one um, had less grease, which is the Mm -hmm. staticky noise that you get. So um, we, that's primarily what we did. And, what was very unique and fun about this is that we got to go to areas that no crew has ever gone to or maybe hasn't gone in a really long time. Um, so the furthest I got to go out to was really, 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 really far north. And um, I guess this kind of broke Sim again a little bit. It was kind of freaky because we got up to a river kind of wash area and obviously there had been a flash flood and a herd of cows had gotten caught in it. And there were a lot of dead cows, <laughs> dead Mars cows. And that was like, it was just really eerie because, yeah. you know, you come across these cows and they're half decayed. And um, it was, yeah, very like, oh, something out of a Ray Bradbury story. Yeah, we were like, we're going to turn around now. <laughs> yeah, dead Mars cows. Dead Mars cows. <laughs> Um, and of course, this this is all mostly the federal land, Bureau of Land yeah, Management. Yeah, BLM so, land, yeah. So you probably didn't run into any fences or anything? A, a couple. Yeah. The area that we're in is leased out for scientific research, but we uh, would go past those, uh, those points, and that's where fence lines would be because uh, it's like we're past the area 
that has been designated for scientific research. I think also the fence lines are there, like I said, for um, paleontology purposes um, because it is against the law to take fossils um, that aren't like you can take invertebrate fossils. So mm-hmm. you can take shells or ammonites, but you cannot take no like dinosaurs. a dinosaur bone. Right. <laughs> yeah. So Look I, I found. right. So some of the fences are for those areas where they know there's a lot of fossils or it's a dig site like Burpee wow. has theirs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So a few fences, but no, for the most part, it's just wide open spaces wow. and, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And the night sky is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And you and I grew up in the Upper Midwest, so this is different. Yeah, for us. yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, my parents live now in Northern Arizona, so it kind of mm-hmm. reminded me a little oh, bit of okay, that area. Okay. But yeah, I um, I will say <laughs> also <laughs> that you know we've talked about my trip to Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. I think the Himalayas have ruined things for me a little mm-hmm. bit because nothing can be quite as grand as the Himalaya mountains. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the Himalayas have ruined me a little mm-hmm. bit because everyone, we would get to these overview lookout points. And that, don't get me wrong. It's not not amazing. It's just sort of like apples and oranges. You mm-hmm. know, like they are two totally different things. Mm-hmm. And when you've just gotten back from seeing the appliest of apples mm-hmm. <laughs> ever. Yes. <laughs> and then you're looking at this oranges location. You're like, yeah, no, it's cool. It's It's just something in your brain is like, yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. But... Yeah. It's not Himalaya yeah. <laughs> impressive, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Um, but it was still beautiful. And the, the sedimentary layers are just phenomenal. It's just so cool mm-hmm. to look at just, it's like looking at a book and mm-hmm. pages of a book. Yes. So that, that was really, and really the, the uplift and, you know, you can see it's sort of a, it's a record of what happened. Yeah, the rocks yeah. tell stories. Yeah, they certainly do. Yeah. yeah. So you dropped a hint of this earlier. Let's go ahead and and preview this. I'm going to talk to you at some length about this this fall because I'm I'm fascinated by it. I'm sure a lot of people are. You you have a new research opportunity coming up that involves the ocean, mm-hmm. and so can you can you tell us what that will be all about? I'm still a little bit, uh, let's say, at sea about it myself. <laughs> okay, yeah, this is a big one for me. So this is the news I got while I was at the Mars Desert Research Station. And this is something that I was in suspenseful limbo with for over a month. I get to be an onboard communications officer for a ocean core drilling research ship called the Joides Resolution. We nickname it JR. And the the Joides Resolution is the world's leading research vessel for core drilling in the ocean. There's only two vessels that do that. And this is the most famous one. It is funded by the National Science Foundation and um, operated through the International Ocean Discovery Project. And also Texas A&M has their hands in that. So there's a lot of people who are involved in this ship and every expedition has one to two communications officers that go along. And we do ship to shore broadcasts. We, um, operate the social media. We basically were the the voice of the ship for that expedition. And I get to be on Expedition 399, which is going to the Atlantic Massif, which is a big ridge in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And there is a very, very special area called the Lost City Hydrothermal Field. And we're core drilling in that area, which is very interesting and unique for astrobiology research which is like, that's what I do. (laughs) I love astrobiology. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, we will be 
taking these core samples, the ship is capable of going down five miles into the water and then can core drill down two miles below that. And then they pull up these core samples and we bring them on ship and then scientists will do research on the cores on board. And then we also store a bunch of them in the belly of the ship and then bring it back. And then they'll do more research when we bring it back. But core sampling is so, so, so important to earth science and earth history because that, like we were saying, the sedimentary rocks in the desert, the rocks tell stories and there are layers and the oceans are so, so full of secrets that as we drill down, we can, um, you know, learn so much just from climate science and paleontology and, and in this case for astrobiology research. It's warm down there. Stuff is coming up. Yeah, yeah. So the unique feature to this hydrothermal field is that normally hydrothermal events are called black smoker events. Mm -hmm. And those are events where basically magma and heat from the Earth's mantle mm -hmm. is pushing up and it's pushing out this immense amount of heat. And the ocean is very cold. Mm -hmm. And so it the, the pressure of the ocean and the heat um, differences stop it from turning immediately into a vapor, into a gas. So <clears throat> it warms up the water around those vents and there are ecosystems that thrive off of it and they actually get energy off of the energy that's coming out of that. This vent field is actually different. Basically what is happening there is the Earth's crust is pulling apart and exposing the mantle. And so minerals in that man mantle are interacting with the ocean water and it's causing an exothermic reaction, which means the 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 reaction is causing heat to emit and this heat is at a lot lower of a temperature than those black smoker vents and so life really likes this area of venting if you will because um it's just perfect conditions for life to thrive and there are also processes that are happening down there that create hydrocarbons which is literally the building blocks of life as we know it. So it is a very interesting area to study. And the the ultimate idea would be that this is where everything started. That is a very um, strong, a, theory, a leading theory, yes, okay. of life, origins of life. So that is what my, my expedition is named. It's an origins of life research expedition. Mm. And this is a important expedition not only for understanding maybe how life got started here on Earth, but also to understand how this process is happening. Because when we go into space and we go to Mars and we go to um, different icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn, we think this could be maybe happening under those icy surfaces of different moons. And, and, and so it, it is a very interesting clue that we can use to do space exploration. Mm -hmm. so it's One thing cool. I've learned from you and that we're, we're looking for parallels in, <laughs> in terms of the way chemical elements and molecules and, and uh, the way this stuff works, it's going to work this way on Earth. It might work similarly to this uh, on, on Mars or the moons of Saturn and we're looking for parallels and processes and trying to draw hypotheses of the way life comes into being. And that may be the same a million light years away from here as it is here. But we don't, of course, we don't really we don't know. know yet. Right. 
but we're we're looking for that. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the two things that I like to always remind people is, first of all, we feel so separated from space on Earth, but really, we are just a planet right. like all the other planets out mm-hmm. there. We... We, as far as we know it, operate by the same laws of chemistry, the mm-hmm. same laws of physics. Uh, well, eh. but <laughs> I don't want to, you know, get into that mind warp. But to, yeah. the, to you know, but um, as far as the the scientific tools that we have that we know of, everything seems to operate in the same way. Mm-hmm. And also, the second thing I like to point out is that this is good science. We cannot just send up a probe to Mars and be like, we're going to look for little green men in a lava tube. Mm-hmm. We have no evidence for that. We cannot justify the cost of research for that. We have to take what we know and build on that. That is the scientific process. And so the, the scientific processes, we, we set out to basically prove ourselves wrong. Mm-hmm. And if everything still lines up, then, then, then we determine that this must be the way that something is working. So, by studying extreme things on Earth, it prepares us to study extreme things in space based on what we understand. Because we can't just willy-nilly come up with some wild hypothesis of how something works. The closest to, like, maybe something works differently that we know of so far is that they detected um, a, uh, a molecule called phosphine in the atmospheres of Venus. And the way that we understand phosphine is formed on Earth, if it's not done in a lab, is that it only comes as a byproduct of, or a waste product, I'm sorry, of biological organisms. Um, so it's like found in the guts of bats and stuff like that. So the fact that they detected it in in Venus's atmosphere, as we understand it on Earth, it only comes from living organisms. So that's very interesting. If somehow chemistry is working differently and somehow has created phosphine that is also very interesting so either way that's a very interesting discovery it could mean that there are you know uh, microorganisms living in the atmosphere or chemistry is not working the same way there um but we can't be like well we're just going to assume chemistry is working a different way and then go and make a an investigation off of that we have to do it as we understand it and so the same thing works with studying these hydrothermal vents and studying how processes work on Earth. We just, you know, that's how that, those are the tools that we equip ourselves to go search the solar system for signs of life. So that's a big part of the message you're going to be trying to get out. Here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that th- th- this is a uh, a broad-based inquiry looking for parallels and differences. And it's about a, a lot more than little green men. Yeah, it, and it's it's. Why do we always assume they're green? I, <laughs> I don't never know. Never understood that. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know. The world that we know of and our solar system we're so interconnected, and that's what I'm saying. We're not separated from space. We're all so deeply connected and interwoven with each other. And so, it is an exciting thing for me to have this opportunity to go to one of the most unique locations on Earth and this extreme location and get to be with these amazing researchers who are all interested either in planetary science or geology or astrobiology and um, get to just be a part of this. It's, you know, it's just, it's just a, an amazing opportunity. And um, yeah, and the boat is, uh, it's one of those things too, as soon as you know, you're going to get to go that ship is yours. Like mm-hmm. I am so attached to that ship already. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the JR is going to be home. And I, 
I I am still in a little bit of shock. It was like I was living in a suspension mm-hmm. for those couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really digest that news properly until I got back to my real life. And now I am back to my real life. Life is interesting. Life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we will keep up with you um, because how could we not? Oh, God. Uh, and so thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Uh, give us all your social media handles oh, again yes. so we can, yeah. Yes, I'm Space Case Sarah. You can find me on Instagram at Space Case Sarah 22. S A R A H. With an H. Yep. yep. Um, I, on Twitter, I, I just, I made Twitter so long ago, I didn't have Space Case Sarah yet. So I'm mm-hmm. Treadwell with mm-hmm. one L and then 19. But if you just mm-hmm. Space Case Sarah, you'll, you'll figure out who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, find me on Facebook. I'm Space Case Sarah professionally, but I'm pretty liberal in uh, befriending anyone mm-hmm. on my private page as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I have YouTube, and I also have a radio show on iRock Space Radio. I am Space Case Sarah, and I am the host of Cosmic Waves. And we are on the iHeartRadio platform, and I have um, my show airs on Wednesdays and Saturdays at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. Central Standard Time. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. We will be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Webhawk News Podcast is an independent production from the University of Wisconsin, Whitewater. I'm Jim Cates.